Thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast, an online educational resource dedicated to the overlap and exchange between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. You can visit us at fantasy-animation.org and get to grips with our archive of podcast episodes or check out our many blog posts that feature editorials, sequence analyses, film, TV, book and conference reviews and even reflections by animators and practitioners. You can also find us on a variety of social media from Twitter and Facebook to Reddit and Instagram or you can drop us a line at fananimresearch at gmail.com to join in the conversations, share a blog post idea or even offer your own take on the fantasy animation relationship. The episode you're about to hear was recorded in the giddy pre-lockdown days with special guest, the film composer, writer, performer and television presenter, Neil Brand. As a fantasy animation team, we were thinking about when and how best to release this uh, pre-COVID instalment and after much deliberation felt that this was as good a time as any to let you, the listeners, hear our thoughts on the computer animated film Rango. So please do sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hi again listeners and welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I am your host Alex Sargent. Uh, and I am Christopher Robin Nay Holiday. Ah, <laughs> uh, see, it's annoying that I had to introduce the podcast this week, Chris, because I was absolutely going to go with Eeyore, but uh, and I think I am going to be a somewhat Eeyore-like presence um, as we talk about this um, Disney movie from the last. Um, oh God, I've already forgotten a piece of information, so I'm bang on form already. When was this film out? About 2017, 2018. We're, we're dealing with Christopher Robin, which is 2018, and yes. there is, of course. Goodbye, Christopher Robin, which was released in 2017. One is a biography of A.A. A. Milne, which is the film we won't be doing. But nearly nearly watched by mistake. Yes. But, um... <laughs> yep. um, and also, probably this is a good point to, to flag up. Um, Karen Rickards has written a, a lovely blog post mm-hmm. um, from, yeah, from about a couple of years ago, actually, that sort of compares these two films. But we are we are jettisoning the Dom Hall Gleason starring uh, A.A. A. Milne biography, and we are instead looking at Christopher Robin, so the 2018 fantasy... Uh, comedy in places, uh, drama, not a musical, but it reminded me of Mary Poppins Returns, which we'll talk about. And, and there is um, a, there is a song in it. There is a um, a reprisal of the Tigger song at one oh, moment. Oh yes, of course. Um, uh, so yeah, it's 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 a sort of I don't know. I'm going to call it a hook style reimagination of uh, the Winnie the Pooh mythology, where we get an adult Christopher Robin who is sort of you know classically grown up forgotten his old playful friends and has become um i did write down what he is he's a he's a he's a he works in a luggage company and he's a uh i don't know um and in uh, what is it it's a standards insurance he's a, the person that worries about whether they have to make anyone redundant in a in a luggage company so, so uh, <laughs> funnily enough my first note is hook question mark yeah and then my second note is christopher robin will grow up to work as director of efficiency uh, Winslow <laughs> luggages, um, and I'll, I, I'm interested in that low, uh, one because of the job, but also the setting, which is Senate House Library in London. And I have lots to say about how the film uses Senate House Library and what that means for sort of digital landscapes and urban spaces. So yes, I'd like to talk to you about Hook. Um, I'd like to talk to you about hesitation, um, uh, and incredulity, and childhood, and yeah, some some things about. Um, the production of the film i was doing a little bit of research into the production of the film and how the characters sort of used on set toys of varying degrees of 
bodily parts missing depending on and colors depending on what was going to be um the character was going to be do, uh, done in the shot this is of course live action and cgi so i'm i've 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 got lots to say as christopher robin i fear you as eeyore may be um yeah i don't know what what kind of approach you'll be taking to the to the film this week well i, I you've asked me what i'm going to talk about hopefully which i think are all those issues that i think about you know childhood is, is is a really important sort of part of the melting pot of fantasy that is this movie um a movie that i think is bananas and not necessarily in a good way for lots of the for lots of those reasons that you've just expressed in terms of how it adapts or reimagines um the original winnie the pooh tales but i guess i was gonna be interested in talking to you about sort of you know the way the film tries to not only sort of reimagine um uh the winnie the pooh characters but revisualize them as as these sort of cgi 3d in the world creatures um tactile uh you know kind of soft you know they really emphasize sort of the fact that these these um these things are, are cuddly toys um, moving and running around in a way that perhaps the cartoon doesn't necessarily emphasize. So um, I think that's really interesting in that uh, I'm sure there's loads of great things to talk about in terms of CGI and its ability to both sort of replicate touched and felt surfaces, but also obviously isn't a touched and felt surface. But I also think it kind of is a really odd kind of contrast with the way the film is using fantasy and um, there's lots of things to unpack well actually that that leads me nicely into the the opening logo because i think actually the the tactility and the materiality of cgi is is identified in its absence and and you know we'll talk about this and scholars have written about the the ability of cgi to to produce certain kinds of textures but my first i i I lied because my actual first note is the disney logo and i put disney logo in cg which then turns into so so essentially the the disney magic castle logo has gone through various iterations and in its current form it's this sort of lavish three-dimensional cg uh castle around which the camera moves and follows the magic sort of pixie dust and and then the disney logo is is placed front and center uh, here it then turns into a, a boiling and we talked about this in a previous episode a sort of boiling illustration so the the drawing takes over um so we go from a CG castle to a 2D boiling, i.e. A, 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 a drawing that sort of shakes because it's frame by frame and drawings are imperfect in, their, in the way that they're kind of copied and reproduced. So there's a slightly boiling aesthetic as, as drawing shake of their own volition um, that is clearly supposed to be images that are illustrated by hand, which then turn into pages of a book that then turn over and stuff. And within those pages of the book, you get... Um, little notes so deep in 100 acre wood and you have bits of prose and things like this and i know you're interested in the way that disney films start with the 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 fantasy storybook anyway but it's interesting what you say about cg creating materiality and and uh, revising what these characters look like because what the film tries to do in that opening sequence it has drawings of the characters in their familiar 2d form in the book and then we move through the book and we are in a sort of live action setting with these digital three-dimensional characters and actually i think what the film is doing is trying to set up that the characters always looked like three-dimensional toys and it was just the books that drew them like that 
and and so there's a sort of interesting relationship that's being set up in that it's it's showing you the book with the images of the um Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore and Tigger and Piglet as we remember them to be and then well, and as you say as has been originally readapted by Disney yes. because of course we've got a whole process of going through a number of different authors here yeah uh, and then from there we see the sort of persuasive pristine um three-dimensional CG figures as if to suggest that the drawings were only ever drawings of those real characters, those real toys. And so it sort of sets up an interesting hierarchy and, and certainly maintains and divides and, and uh, relies upon a separation between the way that the characters look on the page and the way that the characters are going to look in the real world. And it's not that those characters, they're different characters, it's that they are one was just a drawing of the other. Yeah, they're both they're both animated. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting way of, of opening the, the film with the storybook and, and sort of emphasising illustration over illusionism. Oh, it's mad, Chris. Absolutely mad. Uh, before we get before further, I, w- I have a note before your note, before the film even starts, is that, of course, the reason we're talking about this is because we're, we we asked listeners for a suggestion on nostalgia. So before we get any further, we should just credit um, Amy Louise Morgan, a lecturer in medieval literature at the University of Surrey, who suggested this movie. Um, and I think there's lots to talk about in terms of nostalgia. But, but to go back to the point you're making about the way this movie starts with this storybook open. I'm obsessed with storybook opens, you're right, in Disney movies because they quite often set up um, or, or create the rhetoric of what the visuals are supposed to be doing in the film. So if you go right back to sort of Snow White, in fact, if you listen back to our podcast on Snow White, I think we talked about this a little bit, um, if memory serves, but um, my nostalgia might be getting in the way there. Uh, Ep- episode one it was, back in the day, episode one. Yeah, right, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so forgive the, the, the problems with sound quality and all the other things going on, but I think we talk about the idea of the storybook opening. And what that film does is it kind of sets up that what we're about to watch is almost a sort of embellishment or illustration of a folk tale. So the folk tale is sort of told very nicely. A lot of the storytelling in Snow White is done through um, that storybook opening and closing. In fact, about 50% of the plot is conveyed in those like 30 seconds of, of narrative there and there. And then the rest of the movie are these sort of, you know, episodic visionettes as as the film it embellishes, adds to, and decorates that original folk story. Here, you're quite right, we get something very odd going on. We get the illustrations, which which seem to create a rhetoric that the Disney cartoon were, were in the same way as Snow White, meant to be seen as illustrations of the original A.A. Uh, a. Milne um, novels. Um, and then by t- kind of bringing us into the world of CGI and the world of, of quote-unquote live action... What two things are happening simultaneously that completely kind of set up the confusing aspect of this movie if you're a fantasy fan and care about sort of coherence of logic and rhetoric, even though these things are impossible creatures? The first thing it does is it establishes them as quote-unquote real objects in the world. So these aren't cartoons now. These are real objects. We are supposed to believe that Pooh Bear is not a cartoon bear, but a real object in this world that Ewan McGregor interacts with. And when he comes to London, Hayley Atwell has to act really shocked and surprised because there's a talking bear. But the other thing is it does is it is it's not a bear. It's it's a toy bear. So it's a it's a real toy bear. Whilst the Disney cartoons, if they do anything, is that they take something away from the novel. In the in the novel, that's kind of 
bubbling under the surface all the way through. That actually, this is a story about a child talking to his soft toys. Yeah, which is something the the other goodbye Christopher Robin does very nicely. Actually, is that it sort of reasserts that aspect of the original novel that th- th- this isn't a boy talking to a cartoon bear. These aren't anthropomorphic bears and rabbits and all this. This is these are stuffed toys being played with um, in the fantasy storytelling. So on the one hand, it it makes it more real because it makes it an object in the world, but the object is less real than the Disney cartoon because in the Disney cartoon there's a certain level where you're supposed to imagine that that's a talking bear in this it's a talking stuffed bear so there's a whole that that 30 seconds you've highlighted explains the problem of the entire movie which is that it's simultaneously trying to make something seem more physically real whilst also continuing to assert that the thing itself is not real you go so so it seems like the the opening storybook is designed to create the illusion that the books and the Disney films of which um there are several and and, and particularly one that was released in 2011 which I'm sort of fascinated by but the, these these characters look like that because they were all only ever drawings and there were always drawings of real things this film tries to there give give vision to these in digital technology but this is what the drawings were of these real things as you say, we have Winnie the Pooh as a teddy bear, essentially. A toy, you know, Eeyore is a toy donkey. Uh, Piglet is a toy pig. The owl is a real owl, i.e. An, oh, God, yeah, right. Here we go. Yeah. And <laughs> and uh, Rabbit is a real rabbit rather than a toy rabbit. Um, so so even the collection of, you know, the, the, and from when we first get into 100 Acre Wood and, and we see all of these characters in CG for the first time, the film does a, a, a an awfully good job of trying to tell us that these are three-dimensional because there's one they're singing and two they're banging their feet on chairs and tables to give them a sense of weight and volume and, and presence and materiality and that's what it tries to do the things that drawings can't do on the page the cg can do in three dimensions um but it seems to be a collection of of toy kangaroos and real rabbits and real owls and toy donkeys that are all collected together and the film doesn't seem to discriminate between toyness and animalness they are they are part of or they're sort of um animated i was gonna say tarred with the same brush when i meant digitally animated with the same technology there is no discrimination that's made between real animals that have human-like qualities and toys that don't have any kind of consciousness but seem to come to life and so there's there's a different register that's going on and this is all within the first as you say the first couple of minutes and the and the the uh, headings and the fact that the book's pages and the illustrations are constantly used in the first five minutes or so they're used as scene transitions and to mark chronological distinctions and to get us to to you and mcgregor quicker but um there's a lot going on in the first five minutes or so but, but the, the the madness of all this is because, although there's just sort of, you know, the further up level of unpacking to do is that the the books, you know, if, if you travel back in, so we've got, we've got, we've got three artifacts going on here. We've got this movie we're talking about right now. We've got the Winnie the Pooh mythology that's been created by Disney and visualized by Disney. And then you've got the original Winnie the Pooh stories told by A.A. Milne. And I don't really care about fidelity too much because that's not a particularly interesting question to ask. But, but but it's only worth going through the sort of prism of adaptation to sort of see what different types of relationship in terms of fantasy these three artifacts are asking us to 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 go through as viewers because because in the original novels um 
they are stuffed toys. I mean, it's not it's not asserted so explicitly as as you know uh, the visuals of this movie great but they are the whole point of winnie the pooh the the pleasure of winnie the pooh is that these this is a story an imagined story told from the perspective of christopher robin in which he is pretending to talk to his stuffed animals um and the the, the you know the, the, so there is a sort of you know liminality i think is what probably um Farrah Mendelssohn would describe it as or, or or hesitation if you go sort of through other lenses but there's this sort of an aspect of fantasy storytelling that likes to sort of sit you on the cusp of belief or disbelief or dramatize disbelief to kind of confront you with the, with the impossibility of a moment and the whole point of Winnie the Pooh the reason it kind of it strikes so many people as this like you know wonderfully melancholic yet beautiful tale is that it's it's about the impossibility of what's going on it's about the impossibility of the child's worldview lots of early 20th century fantasy writing is about this it's about writers who are going through um a collective cultural and personal trauma um often writers who have experienced you know warfare they are going through the sort of switch from high modernity and the sort of optimism of modernity to the the sort of you know malaise of post-modernity um they're confronted with a world that no longer makes sense and they and, and they tell these really nuanced stories about the sort of futility of trying to believe in things so Winnie the Pooh is about the fact that no matter how hard you how much you want Winnie the Pooh to be real he isn't real he's a stuffed bear and it's about that moment that you kind of let go of childhood as much as it's about the moment of childhood itself it's a celebration of something so that's what makes it nostalgic it's a celebration of something that's already been lost but of course, it's not lost in this movie because the bear's bloody real. It's a bear that runs around and and people go, oh gosh, that's a talking bear. And and so the whole rhetoric is really confusing because this is a world, the, the world of Christopher Robin is a world where talking bears can exist. And that's never the point of Winnie the Pooh. So it's really, really strange. And we're now 30 seconds into the movie and like 15 minutes into the podcast. So good luck, everyone. This is looking like a long one. Yeah. No, I... I, I as you were talking i was just i was you know i have notes about the role of imagination and and uh given that the film itself is about that struggle to retain connection to the past the nostalgic past dealing with you're you know you're an adult with adult responsibilities you are an adult who's director of efficiency at a luggage company yet at the same time will open your satchel and find um haycorns and be reminded of your sort of childish childish ways um uh, and, and so actually this this um I wonder whether the first kind of context that I had for the for the film was was I had Hook, but I had this idea of you know that it's about characters that are finding their childhood again. Um, but also, there's a cycle of films from sort of the the second decade of the the 21st century that david ehrlich in a, in a piece online has called nice core films um from and he talks about paddington too and i would certainly add mary poppins returns and christopher robin as part of that and and what's interesting i think is the role of animation in all of these things but um ehrlich is essentially arguing that there's there's kind of kindness at the heart of these these movies there are a cycle of films that are humane and optimistic they are about the goodness of people they're about um a kind of escape he, he he's essentially 
arguing for the Trump context, this sort of um, an escape from what he calls unquote ongoing political debacle that has prompted filmmakers to reconsider the type of stories that they that they want to tell. And he calls these films uh, nice core cinema because he's arguing that kindness can be transformative, be a transformative force unto itself. Um, and, he, and then he says, and this is a, a, a prescient quote, quote, even if the Trump era is regrettably still in progress, its pop cultural legacy may already be taking shape on the global stage. Um, and the, I mean, the key examples are the, are the Paddington movies, which is of a similar ilk that you have um, a sort of a buddy movie structure between um, a digital character and a, and a, and a real human, if you like. Um, but there's something certainly nice and genuine and warm about these nice core films and I'd certainly one I think Christopher Robin reminded me of, of Mary Poppins Returns i.e. The, the Banks children have lost something about their childhood and that's why Mary Poppins is returning she's here to look after the Banks children again um, and help them find their childish ways which ultimately ends with them um, hanging from balloons in the middle of the sky um, and this film, which is about a director of efficiency who is too efficient and part of his efficiency is bleeding into his home life and he is ignoring Hayley Atwell's um, character, his wife, um, who says, "You, I can't remember the last time you laughed. And there are certain, and even the sort of high-rise buildings of, of Winslow Luggage um, where he works are very similar to, to kind of Colin Firth's character in in, um, in Mary Poppins Returns, that these are rigid and very white and very male spaces, uh, and then there is no place for childhood. And part of this, these nice core films, as Ehrlich claims, are these are they rely on the kindness of, of people and, and strangers and your favourite bear in in London. And certainly that's that's true of, of Paddington and Christopher Robin, the, the articulation of, of London. So um, yeah, I, I, certainly the niceness of the of the film struck me in ways that one connected back to Mary Poppins Returns and Paddington to this idealism of of niceness and nice core films Uh, and also Hook you know as you mentioned earlier this sort of um, nice core argues that kindness hasn't does doesn't have to be an escape it can be a counter-offensive and so yeah, I had a note on Hook because I thought it's similar. It's it's about these fantasy characters. What happens when fantasy characters grow up? Well, they lose their fantasy. I mean, yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting dialogue to set up. I'm not aware of that piece, but but I think it's it's really helpful in in many ways. But I think it helps. Unfortunately, it helps me articulate what I think the problem with I've got with this is is that if you, you I like this analogy of the idea of of of, of making nice movies as a response to the cruelty that politics has become um, and, and there being something politically important about being nice and hopeful. And, and absolutely, I'm sort of well on board with that. And there is analogy between that and, as I say, the trauma of, of a writer like A.A. A. Milne, who is, who is responding to the atrocities of the first half of the 20th century by writing a nice children's story. But my point is that the, that the reason Winnie the, Winnie the Pooh, the original tales are nice is because that's exactly what they ask the view the reader to do through the rhetoric of fantasy they they invite they suggest to the reader look there are two ways of looking at this story one of them is that this is a magical story about a magical bear and the other more rational and more obvious one is that this is a story about a child talking to his stuffed toys and who will soon see that this is not a way one can live in the world um and the film says to the re the reader well it it it, it um 
it provokes the reader into exactly what you're saying, that transformative, see the world differently. Not because it's the rational or the obvious or the efficient way of doing it, but because it's the best way. It's the most politically important way. Um, and, and that's what liminal fantasies can do. And that's kind of what makes them really exciting, is they can, they can provoke the reader into picking the option that suits them, rather than picking the option that dominant ideology tells them to look through. But this film requires the idea that the that the Pooh Bear exists for that to happen. So it's not about the transformative power of niceness. It's about the transformative power of realising that soft toys can exist. Because I just keep sat in there going like, so Christopher Robin seems doesn't seem particularly surprised when Pooh shows up. He seems surprised in the way that if I hadn't seen an old friend from 18 years ago suddenly show up at my doorstep, I'd be surprised. But he's not He's not doing what, what um, Robin Williams spent most of the of Hook doing. In Hook, Robin Williams keeps going, oh, that's not a, you know, that's not a real fairy, that's some sort of Freudian manifestation. He keeps trying to rationalise the fantasy. Ewan McGregor goes, oh, Pooh, you're here. Why are you here? You should be in the Underdaker Wood. Let's get you back to Eeyore. So, so, so he already believes in the fantasy, he just doesn't access it very often. So that makes me think, right, if you live in a world, Ewan McGregor, Christopher Robin, where you believe that there are stuffed toys that walk around everywhere, why are you working in a luggage factory? Like, so, why sh- shouldn't you be, like, getting them out on the road? Like, you know? <laughs> yeah, ching so, so I think that's, that's part of why... I, and I had, a, I had a question for you about Portal Quest fantasies, because I think part of what you're saying is, is because the film chooses to begin in the fantasy. I, it chooses to begin in Hundred Acre Wood, where Christopher Robin is having this sort of dinner party this goodbye dinner party and he says that to Winnie the Pooh that I'll, I will never forget you as he as he ultimately will do because he grows up and that's sort of what happens and he's then dropped off at boarding school so he goes back into the real world through this sort of little door um, dropped off at boarding school he's punished quite importantly for drawing pictures of Pooh Bear in his classroom because draw, drawing and illustration are childish ways and we should forget those when we grow up um, and then we have these series of sort of vignettes as you say where we have uh, he's then here and then he goes to war and then and ultimately ends up as the director of efficiency um, and that's a great little moment actually she's like that that is a really nice, like, um, you know, the, the 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 person experiences war and grows up is a, is an interesting folding together of both the sort of biographical information surrounding A.A. Mill and um, and this sort of fictionalized Christopher Robin. So yeah, I'm I'm on board with that. Okay, okay, um, and then yeah, and then then you and what what's interesting is that we then go back to. Um, he comes he returns home from war he meets his daughter for the first time they have sort of solidified as a family unit and um he he is working and working too hard and and certainly is is somebody who is shirking his fatherly responsibilities because he's trying he has to work over the weekends and uh, he's basically an academic um <laughs> and so uh, um but then we go back without without him we go back to 100 acre wood and winnie the pooh wakes up and finds that people aren't around nobody's around and so what happens is that we have a portal quest fantasy but from the perspective of the fantasy i.e there is no human intruding into the fantasy world um the 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 characters winnie the pooh eeyore and so forth um have to look for things and they try to find christopher robin so so because the film begins in the fantasy world um it's doing exactly what you're saying it's not it's not it allows it allows Christopher Robin to always be aware of the fantasy because the film begins in the fantasy world with which he is familiar. He then leaves it, and then it's up to the fantasy characters to tra- traverse that threshold 
go through a portal and go into the real world. And the film can't decide, for me, the issue is the, the film can't decide whose story it's telling. Because it's called Christopher Robin, but it's not really about him. It seems to be uh, the first chance that they get, the film removes him from the equation, takes us back to 100 Acre Wood, and then it's about the toys or the real bear or whoever they are. Um, it's about their uh, journey narrative to then go and find him. And the film moves between, and then it takes on the role of the daughter. And then she takes the toys and goes back through that. And so there's a really strange, I don't know who where our allegiance, well, I know where our allegiances are, but I don't know who we're aligned with because the film narratively can't decide. Yeah, I agree, and I think again, it's it's this, it's, and it, what it can't decide is whether it's happy for Winnie the Pooh just to be a fantasy. Because on the level of the visuals, it is it is gone. It, it's made quite a bold, and and actually one of the most interesting things about it is that really kind of you know the, the felt tactile kind of you can see the um the dust and the sort of um the the, the oldness of the bear um on screen and it both looks like the Winnie the Pooh of the cartoon but doesn't um and 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 there's a certain just simple melancholy in the design because it sort of it looks like it looks like the cart it looks like the soft toy version of the cartoon that they might have sold in a supermarket that's aged about 30 40 years um and there's something kind of bold about that choice because but but then it's like oh no but don't worry Winnie the Pooh's real he lives in a wood um, and he gets a train to London whenever. Well, no, he gets he goes through some sort of hole that seems to just appear in his in the other guy's back in um Ewan McGregor's back garden, which is confusing, but fine. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly as you're saying. It doesn't know because I would what I would watch the the movie where Winnie the Pooh wakes up and can't find any of his friends and wanders through a wheat field, and then we get a weird like Terence Malick sequence where like the 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 bear's paw brushes against some wheat and you're like what am i now watching um i'd have watched that movie that would have been really sad but really interesting movie about what hundred acre wood looks like without the human presence but but that's not the movie we get (laughs) (laughs) or some version of the hangover where winnie the pooh wakes up and has to piece together the last 24 hours where where is where is where is eeyore's tail how did he lose it fine yes exactly um no uh, yeah no, I, I agree. I, I, the thing about Portal Quest, and I thought, it's interesting, it begins in the fantasy, and then there's a lot of kind of passing over and across and through fre- thresholds. Um, but yeah, I, I have actually more, perhaps more, more questions than I thought about, okay, the, the, who's our protagonist here? You know, because normally these films are Winnie the Pooh, and, and going back to your point earlier about the Disney franchise, the first Disney film um, was... Seven, uh, late 70s, Winnie right? The Pooh, Winnie the Pooh and the... Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree is a 1966 animated featurette. Perhaps the most famous is the 1977 um, film version. There's also a 2011, um, which I think ties in with this issue of nostalgia. Um, We have uh, Princess and the Frog, Disney's film from 2009, Tangled, and then Winnie the Pooh. Okay, and I think those three films, Princess and the Frog very famously is Disney's um, attempt to sort of do Golden Age or perhaps even Renaissance-era cell animation for a digital audience. Tangled is their 50th animated feature that is a princess narrative, so that's nostalgic in its own ways. And then Winnie the Pooh also has uh, that sort of nostalgic element. It's also at the same time that Disney decides to put footage from Steamboat Willie into its logo at the start. So there's there's a period of about three or four years between Princess and the Frog in 2009 and Winnie the Pooh in 2011, where Disney are really trying to emphasise the nostalgic. We bought Pixar, but also we're quite nostalgic. And look, we're, we're, we're doing princess narratives again, we're doing cell animation again, and we're doing Winnie the Pooh again. And actually, 
that's so the, the last Winnie the Pooh adaptation was was this 2011 um, feature film that is predominantly live action, but has has well, it's not predominantly live action. It kind of moves between the two. It's a bit of musical, um, but it it sort of is bookended, I think, with with live action footage, um, uh, and it has includes a lot of the same voice cuts. So Jim Cummings, who voiced Winnie the Pooh. Um, in that film is also the the voice of Winnie the Pooh in this in this new Christopher Robin. But it's interesting that the film chooses to to make this film about Christopher Robin because I'm not entirely sure it. it well, does. I would say that is the least interesting thing about it actually. Yeah. Um. The, the where where it gets interesting is when it actually kind of doesn't. It kind of doesn't. It it kind of works out perhaps in, unconsciously that actually this this let's make Christopher Robin into into Peter Banning in Hook or um. Uh, well, or, how many of those movies now exist? Like those movies where we take the old child character, we make them into a cynical workaholic. Yeah, fine. Um, that's the least interesting thing about it because um, because it's just just a bit cliched now. Um, so the more interesting moments are where it's like, okay, let's make it about Pooh's loss um, because because without a child to play, it's sort of like in a in a Toy Story esque moment, right? Without a child to play with them, there is no activity in the hundred acre wood. Um, so where are his friends and where and where are his adventures? And that's that's a that's a melancholic thought um, and an interesting one. And and you know uh, the 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 child you know the child's kind of uh, interesting enough. I think Haley Atwell does a lot with very little in the kind of classic wife role, um, but but makes it makes it interesting in that her struggle with her husband seems to be that he. Basically, what she loves about him is his playfulness, which he has experienced, um, and he seems to have lost that playfulness. But oddly, where did he lose it? Because obviously, the playfulness comes from his relationship to his childhood, um, but 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 she's never experienced it as ch- so. There's you know there's some stuff in it that where it gets a bit better and a bit more interesting, but it's never about that central struggle because I essentially don't quite understand what the struggle is because it isn't his ability to, to re-believe in Winnie the Pooh. That's what that's what ba- um, Peter Banning goes through. By Peter ba- Peter Banning and Hook becomes to believe in Neverland and that help again and that helps him be a better father because he realises what he's let go in order to be a father. I think that's a really, really clever sequel to Peter Pan Hook because it, it, it doesn't do anything different with the thematic it just simply keeps going with it in a sort of toy story 3-esque mode it's a film that says okay um you've lost your childhood um peter um it was here in this magical place and you've left it behind deliberately because you wanted to be an adult and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be an adult because it's it's inevitable and required of you but that doesn't mean um that doesn't mean you have to um well it it it, it, it means you should celebrate what you've left what you've embraced because of what you've left behind and he what he embraces is being a father and and the thing he wanted to be to give up neverland but i don't understand what the what the trajectory here is because he he's already believes in winnie the pooh he just chooses to visit him more he has a relationship with winnie the pooh that many of us have with like great uncles or aunts that we should visit more you know because they weren't you know uh, he's a lost relative rather than a sort of disbelieving magical character it's that time in the episode again where we pause the podcast because we wanted to share with you um, some of the other suggestions you had for your favourite nostalgic moment or nostalgic film um, in the worlds of fantasy animation. Uh, and we had some really great suggestions this uh, last couple of weeks. So thanks for um, sending them all in via our various platforms, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and I guess Chris and I will just go through a few of them now. 
Yes. Uh, so we had a lot of sort of trends, I think. We could pick out a few trends. I think a really popular one that got a couple of um, a couple of notes on, on Reddit and on Facebook, actually, as well, uh, was uh, Pixar. So a couple of people mentioned Pixar films of the 90s, and we had a couple of shout-outs for Wally and Up, so films that were uh, released in 2008 and 2009, respectively. Um, a sort of really interesting moment, I think, in Pixar's history, that cycle of, of Wally, well, Ratatouille, uh, Wally up and then Toy Story 3 I think was an absolutely winning series of, of films so um, thank you to, to those who who sort of voted for, for Pixar. Um, we also had from Lauren Wartman on Facebook uh, 90s Pixar and 90s Disney as well so I think a lot of kind of popular cell animation and the rise of computer animated films was um, was something that people are, think very fondly about and very sort of nostalgically about. Yeah, and do you reckon that's a, is that a generational thing? Do you think some listeners are of a certain generation where they've grown up with these movies? Um, or do you think there's anything like, I don't know, uh, about the movies themselves that seem to not to, to suggest ideas of nostalgia? Um, I think part of what we're talking about in the podcast is, right, is the tendency to read things nostalgically and the tendency for the films to be nostalgic. Yeah. And I just wondered what you thought about in terms of that run of movies. Well, I think certainly that element of nostalgia is threaded through the Toy Story films and quite deliberately so. I think the, the spacing between the two films, uh, the first two, 1995 and 1999, and then the leap up to the third film in, in 2010 um, is is sort of uh, indicative of Andy as a, as a toy owner and his decision to sort of go to college is very much sort of part of the films are growing up with the audience that watched them and the, 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 the audiences that were children in 1995 are themselves, you know, 15 years on going off to, to kind of college. So I think, and we had a couple of people that have written posts about this on our, on our website. So that element of nostalgia that's threaded through the narratives of Toy Story in particular, I mean, Wally is perhaps nostalgic in a different way because it's all about the, um, it's, it's futuristic setting is very much linked to a uh, nostalgia for, uh, or certainly earthly pleasures, I guess. And the, and the film is is sort of about uh, old children's toys and Wally very famously values, he'd much rather value a box that a ring is in than the ring itself. Uh, and he kind of moves through the certain sequences where Wally is playing with old children's toys, you know, a bat and ball and things like that. So um, yeah, I think, and if we think about John Lasseter and, and kind of Pixar's creative uh, force, workforce, the idea of nostalgia, baby boomers, that sort of thing. I think there's something quite interesting about the way that nostalgia works um, in in Pixar's computer animated films, certainly. And I guess it I guess to link to the conversation we're having about Christopher Robin, it's it's I guess the act of playing with physical objects is in, in some respect, I guess, in the world of digital, um, a, a nostalgic act. So there's something mm. in that. I mean, I guess someone should probably write something on like. Um, on the way the film sort of folds in ideas of, of animation and playing and puppetry um, within the Toy Story franchise. But um, unfortunately, I haven't read any good scholarship on that, certainly. Yeah. Um, halfway I mean, halfway through that comment, I thought yeah. he's, he's playing a game here. And then there came, came <laughs> a point where I thought he's actually forgotten I might have written something on this. But um, you're absolutely <laughs> right. Yes. Play and puppetry and, and yes, are, are part and parcel of the Toy Story film. So thank you for that um, backhanded shout out. Chris's book is available for all good booksellers. Um, right, we move on to um, another Reddit user uh, uh, through um, whose who's, uh, username Phenomenomenon uh, needs just to mention because it's glorious. Um, and they offer uh, The Lord of the Rings um, as, a, as an example, which fits within sort of a wider discussion we're having about sort of ideas of nostalgia within the impulse of fantasy storytelling. Um, and uh, Phenomenomenon, I said it twice now, 
um, says that I would argue the Lord of the Rings is largely an exploration of nostalgia and often an outright celebration of it. The films and the books too are utterly dedicated to the superiority of a faded or forgotten past. The kings were more noble back then, there was more magic, and the forests were healthier. People knew how to build cities. That's a quote from Tolkien. And Tolkien sounds like a, a grumpy old man at times, pining for the good old days, and he knows that and embraces it. The result is an inherently conservative work in many ways, I guess. If nothing else, in the past you were younger and there was less pain, fewer regrets, more friends, and the fam- and your family was still alive, and more fire in the blood. That would make everything rosier. I think there's absolutely an element whereby part of the impulse, at least within the Western tradition in the last couple of hundred years, to tell what we have known to be, what we have come to know to be fantasy story to, um, stories, is a response to shifting cultural dynamics, um, a desire to um, retreat back to old ways, um, and I guess that's part of the sort of wider postmodern condition that we're all um, we're sort of dancing around in this podcast. So thank you for nominominom three times there um, for that great suggestion. Yeah. Um, so we had a, yeah, a couple of other suggestions uh, going a little bit further back within Hollywood animation history. One from Reddit user Zane416, uh, suggesting Tom and Jerry. Uh, somebody else uh, suggested Looney Tunes uh, as well as Tom and Jerry. Looney Tunes, of course, is a, was, was Warner Brothers and MGM were in charge of, of Tom and Jerry. Um, and then we also had a, a shout out to both Looney Tunes and Tom and Jerry um, on Facebook from Katie Kuncevich uh, talking um, about, I think, well, yeah, the sort of 90s 50s-ness of it the mid-century nostalgia of, of of a certain kind of short cartoon anarchy i think um yeah i mean looney tunes and and warner brothers are often positioned as, we, as we've talked about many times as the antithesis or the 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 golden age of Hollywood animation that wasn't Disney. So Disney were pioneering a certain kind of hyper-realist sensibility um, and a certain kind of sentimental modernism, whilst the Looney Tunes and and Warner Brothers as one of their series and uh, MGM were sort of pioneering a slightly more um, anarchic cartoonal form that that sort of played with gravitational laws in a way that perhaps Disney's hyper-realism didn't play with violence. You know, these are the spaces where where kind of cartoon violence resides and and with that uh, a kind of comic treatment of the body. So absolutely, I think that the 1950s cartoons are really important um, and ultimately come towards the end of of the golden age of Hollywood um, cartoon production and the the rise of the seven-minute cartoon. Um, So yeah, I think thank you very much to to those people who, who, one, suggested Tom and Jerry and two, reminded me that I had the box set of the cartoons, which gives me something to watch over the next few weeks. Sure, um, as we record in lockdown conditions. Um, and then, of course, our final um, suggestion from um, in our in one of our Instagram followers, um, Jonathan Root, who is a, a senior lecturer in film studies um, at the University of Greenwich. Um, uh, he offers uh, Labyrinth, um, which which is sort of often, again, it might be a generational thing, but of a slightly earlier generation. Um, another example of of uh, a film with a certain nostalgic appeal, um, based partly on its sort of um, strangeness or I guess queerness to sort of politicise it um, in terms of gender roles. We've got the sort of you know odd erotic appeal of of David Bowie's Goblin King um, in the movie that that the weirdness the weirdness in every sense of the word of the plot matching the weirdness of the of the form with this sort of you know uh, pioneering puppetry. And I think there's something about sort of um, a nostalgia for VHSs and and the, and finding movies on VHS because there's a lot of these um, '80s fantasy movies that fantasy movies that for a certain generation feel nostalgic. 
Um, and they're things like, you know, Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, Never Ending Story, Something Wicked This Way Comes, all these kind of movies that actually didn't do that well at the box office, but have found a certain um, momentum with audiences, probably because people probably watched them on TV, recorded them onto a VHS and stuck them on every morning while they played with their toys. Um, and, and so there's perhaps no nostalgia for a, for a way of viewing as much as of certain texts. So it's really interesting how the, the listeners' suggestions um, or from all forms are really sort of helping us to, to pick apart what elements of nostalgia inform our um, relationship to film and media more generally. So thank you to everyone for your suggestions. Um, they've been really great to read through. Yeah, and actually that discussion of outmoded technologies brings us quite nicely back to, to Wally, you know, and he watches he watches a film on an old well-worn VHS copy. Uh, so it's sort of interesting that the film itself is this highly polished um, computer animated feature film from 2008. And yet at the same time, it finds narrative pleasures or Wally finds narrative pleasures in in the sort of imperfect, yeah, and, and, and well-worn uh, and grainy images of, of VHS. So I think that's absolutely right, that the sort of, the home video aspect of it and the, the pleasures of having these films and digging out. I think we are all at the moment digging out things that we had perhaps from our, from our childhood or using this time to, to kind of reflect a little bit more. So um, I certainly have, have a bunch of old VHS tapes that I quite kind of quite don't quite know what to do with yet, but um, yeah, it's quite, quite nice to just, to just have them um, really. Wow, that's good. I I've, I've got rid of mine, I'm afraid, but um, I'm going to start not getting nostalgic for my DVDs. If the world keeps changing. Um, Right, we have one final job, Chris, before we get back to the show, and that is to announce um, the theme for our listeners' choice next month, um, which might potentially be our final show, pending conversations behind the scenes. Um, yes. Not final show ever, I should stress, our final um, listeners' choice um, as we sort of work to make sure that uh, we're releasing the podcast we can, but also keeping up with all the work um, you know, commitments we have elsewhere as 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 academics working in quite an odd time in our um in our sector. So we'll we'll think through that and we'll update you on our on our social media streams. But for now, we have at least one more listener's choice um to to play with. Um and uh, Chris, what's the theme for our December? Uh, hint, listeners, uh, uh, listeners' choice episode. Well, it was between two. It was either going to be Easter or Christmas, and I think we went. We went <laughs> in, in the words of Slade, "It's yeah. Christmas." Um, yeah, we we toyed with favorite snuff movie at one point, but we decided that it'd probably be more festive to go with yeah. um, favorite <laughs> Christmas fantasy animation yes so. now this is this is obviously 12 months on from our last um well first of all our blog post that was about that was about kind of christmas christmas animation and our podcast so 12 months ago we had had a conversation about the muppet christmas carol which may again feature oh. as part of a, a choice i know i know it seems like a long time now for yeah, a year ago sitting, sitting together with meredith braun um chatting about um the muppets yeah exactly yeah. so this is a chance for for listeners to um posit and send in and suggest their their sort of favorite christmas fantasy animation are there are, is there something about the seasonal element to, to fantasy that lends it, uh, itself quite well to to animation think about all the adaptations of of uh, a christmas carol anyway from robert zemeckis's 2009 um kind of motion capture film to the Muppet Christmas Carol uh, and others. I, I remember a, a kind of a couple of versions that I've seen on television and, and Robbie the Reindeer. And, you know, there are so many Christmas mm. fantasy animations that we'd, we'd love to sort of uh, one, hear your suggestions, but also gives us a chance to pick through something uh, and ultimately produce a, a seasonal episode for your delectation. Absolutely. So get your, um, uh, hat, uh, your creative hats on, have a little think, um, 
any kind of example you want to send to us from the worlds of fantasy animation? Is it live action with special effects? Is it cell? Is it stop motion? Um, is it sci-fi, fantasy, horror? Any kind of example would be wonderful as long as you've not covered it on the show before. Um, you can get in touch via our various social media streams. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, and Reddit. And the handle for all of those is fananim research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. And you can email us at the same thing, fananimresearch at gmail.com. We will feature as many in our um, episodes next time, and we'll pick one to discuss on the show, um, perhaps with a guest, perhaps with not. It's all a bit of a cliffhanger at the moment, um, but we have a month to work all of that out. Um, but we're excited to talk Christmas with you all um, via the worlds of fantasy animation. Chris, we've rambled on enough there. I think we have to get back to us rambling on about something else right now. Yes, let's get back to 100 Acre Wood pronto. (laughs) See you there. The the assumption is that he's never ceased to believe, even as an adult, he's never ceased to believe in these toys or these these animals that can talk. Um, his, His incredulity comes about sort of half an hour in I think where he's he's had a sort of bad day at work and actually what he's got to do is make some cuts because he's director of efficiency and what he's got to do is make some cuts which will probably end with him having to fire a lot of his his friends well actually they're not even his friends because he doesn't really have any friends he has work colleagues Uh, and so he slumps down on a chair in the middle of this sort of um, square outside his house and Winnie the Pooh appears or he's he's already passed through the threshold so what his what Christopher Robin's incredulity is is not that the toys can talk. It's just that they're there and they shouldn't be there. They should be somewhere else. Yes. What are they doing in London? Yeah. What are they doing in London? Um. And, and I want more of. I want more of. I tell you what. I thought um the film was going to end with him finally having that game with his next door neighbour that he's been putting off for a long time. I thought, oh, there'll be a scene where he reconnects with his next door neighbour, but that didn't happen. What I do want is more scenes with Evelyn, so Haley Atwell's character, uh, and the daughter. There's a couple, only a couple of scenes where it's just Evelyn and uh, Madeline together, and Evelyn is trying to explain that, you know, that she's. She's, you know, that she, you know, she's a, she's a strong woman to to him, and sort of says that you are neglecting your family. Life is happening when you're kind of, you know, what's it, John Lennon? Life is happening when you're doing other things, you know. And but 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 privately with Madeline, they're having a, they have conversations about, you know, your dad's working really hard, and I'm, you know, he wants to be there, come come for the weekend with us, but he can't, and, and all these sorts of things. So I want more of that. Um, but it's interesting. You're right. This this he's lost his childhood and this is emphasized because he's not very good at reading children's stories to her at nighttime. Um, uh, but going back to your point about, Oh yeah, the kind of the hesitation, that's what I was going to ask you about hesitation because I, I, I don't know too much about it. Um, and, and sort of the mo- these moments of indecision and hesitancy that you get in explanations of, of fantasy, perhaps, or, or fan- the fantastic. But there are lots of instances where you have, um, this can't be happening. Chris Robbins says that this can't be happening, I've cracked. And even at the very, very end, when all the, the, the animated characters move into the, the workspace, uh, Mark Gatiss, who's his boss, sort of says, oh, he's gone mad again. I can't, can't quite believe what I'm seeing. And this happens a lot, but I feel like there's a lot of instances of, of hesitating characters who are like, I can't believe this is... But then that's forgotten very, very quickly. Hayley Atwell's character, as you said, sort of believes relatively early on that this is just happening. Um, what is, I'm, I, so what is, what is, what is this, hesita- this is obsession with fantasy and the hesitation of, and characters who don't believe but are made to believe? Well, you know, there, there, there are... It's a really complex issue. Uh, the, the, the term hesitation comes from a book, Svenstan Todorov's uh, The Fantastic, which is not really a book about fantasy literature, but it it articulates a certain subgenre of fiction 
where characters hesitate about whether things are happening on well not on screen he's talking about literature in the on the page or not so stories in which characters aren't quite sure whether um things are happening really or not happening whether the supernatural event is is a real supernatural event in the context of the story or whether it's a sign of you know some sort of uh you know inst- uh, you know uh, failure of perception um so edgar Allan poe stories would fit into this example um but what sort of sort of suggests in this kind of slightly odd book he's, he writes back in the sort of 70s is that there's something about these stories that actually require the reader to also hesitate. So the reader is required also to go, I don't know whether this is real or not in the context of the fiction. And, and his argument is that that relates to sort of a certain cultural anxiety in the late 19th, early 20th century. Well, yeah, late 19th, early 20th century surrounding, you know, um, the, you know, the advent of psychoanalysis and the advent of... Um, an increasingly rational worldview, um, but a disbelief in our own senses. And and so there's a certain sort of attempt to map these stories to a, a wider cultural inquiry into sort of the limitations of, of empiricism and science and, and, and rationality. Almost like they're the film that the stories are begging you to disbelieve them, but there's something about it you just can't quite disbelieve. Um, and and I just I you know I think and and writers on fantasy have sort of taken that up and either you know tweaked it, altered it, changed the word. I mean Mendelssohn's preferred term is liminality. Um, I, you know I in in my book next year, whenever you're listening to this, if it's past past July 2021, um, then by all means access it. But I'm sort of I play with the term in terms of film the film context. Um, but um. But 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 really, it's this issue of like it, it's partially a character response and partially a um, a viewer response. So the two simple questions, I guess, to ask if one is interested in seeing if that notion works with a story like this is: Do the characters hesitate? Um, and if so, why? Um, and what does that do to the story? And then do we hesitate? And oddly, I sort of think the characters could do with hesitating a lot more than they they do. They seem to hesitate in the sense that the screenwriter feels the need for each character when they see Winnie the Pooh to go, oh my god, um, but that's about it. The child quickly gets over it, even, you know, and, and kind of works it out immediately. Oh, you're that bear that my dad drew a f- picture of, so that's fine. Um, uh, which, you know, okay, childhood logic, you can sort of go with that. And then, the yes, the wife goes, oh my god, it's Tigger. Anyway, uh, where are we going? You know, um, uh, and as we said, Christopher Robin doesn't really hesitate. His hesitation is spatial, not um not um ontological it's not oh my god there's a talking bear it's oh my god there's a talking bear in london i thought he only lived in the wood um so i think the characters could do with hesitating more and i could do as a viewer with hesitating a lot less because i don't know what's going on i don't understand whether the soft bear the soft toy talking to me I'm supposed to believe is a real character or not because when I read the original stories I wasn't supposed to believe it was a real character now I'm, I am supposed to believe but if I believe it then I don't have to worry about any of the sense of loss or mourning or melancholy that, that is associated with all of these stories and the film still seems that interesting there's nothing mournful or nostalgic or, or lost about Winnie the Pooh if you can go visit him for tea every weekend which is what he ends up doing at the end of the movie. Yeah? He t- kind of takes a sandwich and sits them on a rock with him. Um, so I don't get it. <laughs> okay, so on the, on this notion of, of belief, I think there's a, a kind of a couple of things, believing in fantasy and hesitation. I think a key moment for me is when Christopher Robin sort of tr- tries to return Winnie the Pooh back 
as an adult, tries to return him back to Hundred Acre Wood, um, and he fights the Heffalump. Uh, and there's a sequence where he fights the Heffalump, but actually doesn't fight Heffalump because nothing's there. And all of the other characters are hiding in sort of you know under rocks and in in sort of warrens and things like this. Um, and Eeyore and who is you know he's he's sort of slumped on the floor. He's not he's not the most engaged. Um, student uh but there's um there's uh, christopher robin is playing or play fighting with a heffalump and it's really about the power of imagination it's just like and, and there's that's a nice mirror um to the the kind of performance with cg characters but but i thought it was interesting that he's he's fighting with this heffalump and it's and it's not there but he's trying to convince people he's trying to convince the other animals in the wood that that he is fighting this real creature and so he begins to play and that's the first time that he starts to embrace his childishness um and does so by pretending that there is a fantasy creature with which he is fighting. Um, and I, saw, I thought that was a really striking way of... Because one, it, it sort of plays into this idea of belief, but two, it doubles exactly what Ewan McGregor has to do when he's acting with characters that aren't there so he's acting with and i was reading some interviews about what he had to act with and we had uh, models that were furry so that they could test out the light so three-dimensional real models that were furry uh, models that were gray for cgi models that were armless and with just torsos uh, models that had no head and and then he said poo on a stick at one point so uh, and then he actually described these as a guillermo del toro version of winnie the pooh which is you know, so Winnie the Pooh and Pan's Labyrinth combine at last, but there are various live-action puppets that he has to that he has to work with, and I thought that was an interesting sort of doubling effect. One, the sequence where he's he's working with the heffalump and trying to convince the other animals that there's there's something there, and Ewan McGregor's role as an actor and how he has to act and react against a, a virtual model that isn't isn't there or isn't there in the way that that w- the finished film articulates that that character but that was a moment where i thought oh, okay it's playing with belief and 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 the whole film is about in a hook like move is about remembering your own nostalgia for something and and then trying to to act that out. that's that's really i hadn't thought about that. that's really interesting you're right that moment actually dramatizes on screen exactly what Ewan McGregor has to do um, in the rest of the movie and the kind of imaginative um, belief we're being asked to engage with with the CGI, isn't it? Doesn't it? And I guess what's interesting is that I've... Well, I've got lots of questions to ask you about this sort of weird relationship between um, CGI and tactility and and obviously its absence in terms of how it's made and all that kind of stuff. But the point I'll make before I'd I'd like you to riff on all that stuff is that... um, I have written in my notes about the idea of, of a toy as a liminal object uh, and sort of psychoanalysts talk about this and that like, you know, childhood toys are, are can be described as almost liminal or transitional objects with the re- between the inner world of the consciousness or emotion and the outer world of physical reality because, of course, the toy is something that invites you to play with and invites you to imagine things onto but is also of course a real toy that exists in the world so if you go through the sort of structures of belief um it is not true that that soft toys um speak they are in they're inanimate objects in the same way a mug is but at the same time the, their very purpose is to is for people to pretend that they do speak and they do move and all that kind of stuff so there's that sort of you know it's it's between the inner and outer world in that respect but and that's what a toy can enable because it's harder to play when you're just given license to try. You know, it, it becomes harder to play with something, both for kids and as and as adults, when there's nothing to play with. Um, and that's the dilemma of this movie on a sort of 
ontological level, right? Is that um, there's no, there's nothing to play with for the actors. There's nothing to play with in terms of us as spectators. So in a way, that moment that you're talking about dramatizes the shift in technology that this film is asking us to engage with because um, we are engaging with a Winnie the Pooh that isn't there, um, just like Ewan McGregor is. So, is, I mean, what what could what what is what what can we do to unpack this sort of strange? You know, if there's a hesitation going on in the narrative, there's a hesitation going on in that we have a CGI technology that was never there, presenting a bear that looks more there than the bear has ever been. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, that that that's the episode's tagline right there. Um, the bear that wasn't there, and and yes, you're you're right. Um, Certainly, there's writing on CG. Uh, there's writing on CG and kind of technology and and textures actually. So Lucy Donaldson, who's written a book on texture in film, talks about in a in a collection on on Toy Story about how or the importance of textures creating a convincing physical world, whether it's rough surfaces or smooth surfaces. Um, the importance of texture in sort of materializing animated universes uh, and. I suppose serving the narrative drama and 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 the ability of pristine digital technology to to sort of simulate convincingly fur and and whatever texture it kind of might be. Um, certainly, effects discourse has tried to lean as much towards the labour of these films as the aesthetic. So, the the logic and labour of effects technology is often characters having to act with tennis balls on sticks and things that aren't there. And and certainly, Ewan McGregor himself has has had his experience with this in relation to the Star Wars. Um, prequels that that are he sort of said there it's interesting because in the star wars films he's trying to play an old character young he's trying to play the young alec guinness and in the christopher robin he's trying to play a young character as old and so he was pulled in two different directions in in sort of both of those those films so um but yeah so writing on digital technology has talked about its persuasive ability to simulate and uh, hold a mirror up to organic reality with regards to um, real life and man-made textures and very famously one of the first uh, films that was able to do this was actually one of the the films that we also got recommended for for the nostalgic um, uh, like knick-knack and and red stream and all these early pixar films that were playing with digital technology because one of the first textures that it could render was plastic and and kind of uh, man-made synthetic uh, surfaces um in the case of winning the Pooh, you're absolutely right there's a lot of emphasis on trying to make these bears convincingly real but in a way that that kind of dislocates dislocates the spectator or there is a hesitation perhaps going on with regards to well i know winnie the Pooh, and he, do he doesn't look like that he looks like the drawings at the start so maybe that's again the, the importance of the drawings to remind people this is still this is still the winnie the Pooh that you know and love but rather than the drawings of the characters that you're familiar with we're going to actually look at the characters themselves and and sort of allow allow the the cg to sort of take over the, the cg is trying to stand in for the real whereas the cell animation is standing in for the for the 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 fantasy in some cases um but i was interested in watching these you know moments where the characters are holding these and there's lots of there's lots of moments is where madeline and and evelyn are holding all of these characters underneath their arms and at the end evelyn barges into the 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 boardroom of of winslow luggages with all of these characters under her arms and she's fully embracing the the um the the fantasy but there are so many instances where as characters are leaving while they're holding these um toys the 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 bears wink or something and then another character goes oh did that bear just wink at me and so there's always a this sort of knowledge transfer if you know you know and if you don't you don't some of you are going to hesitate and some of you aren't going to hesitate um but 
yeah, I mean, I can't remember what your original question was, but something about fur, but something <laughs> like that. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it, yeah, and, and I think, what, I mean, I guess we're still in the first 30 seconds in many ways in that, like, you're right in that one, on the one hand, it's, it's cla- and the, the CGI is doing two things contradictory. On the one hand, it's claiming um, the Winnie the Pooh character for the for the for the world of the real, and it's going. We have made this more real, but by making it more real, it also makes it less real. And I think this is more to do with the with the cartoon. And perhaps if there's a good thing about this movie, is it is it is it decenters that cartoon as being the Winnie the Pooh, and it and it creates a, a way of seeing it as a Winnie the Pooh. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, you're you're right that Christopher Robin, on the one hand, is often a peripheral character. So just looking back at some of the movies, they're quite clearly the Tigger movie, Piglet's big movie, Pooh's Heffalump movie. These are all sort of anecdotally belonging to Pooh, Piglet, and Tigger. And so these are these are their films of which Christopher Robin plays a, a kind of peripheral role. This is a live action continuation that is trying to recenter Christopher Robin and his his lack of his kind of lack of what he what. Um, in fact, I think Evelyn at one point is talking to Madeline and says, I want you to go outside and have dirty, mucky play, which is actually, again, what Christopher Robin does when he fights the Heffalump. He's, he gets dirty. He goes into 100 Acre Wood and he falls down a hole. He gets wet. He um, goes to jump in a, a lake, a river, sorry, and realises that it's only up to his knees because, oh, yes, he's an adult. And the wor- he gets bigger, but the world stays the same. Um, and so the value and the enjoyment of dirty, mucky play is something that, that children children do instinctively and adults forget just as quickly um perhaps there's an issue that the film doesn't quite understand the nature of play because there's a moment i think there's only one moment you see uh, madeline play and it's when she's on a tennis court and she very briefly like hits i believe she hits like a but does she hit a balloon no i don't remember what she hits um, with a tennis racket, and she's she's there's no one on the other side of the court, and she says, and uh, Madeline hits a serve to win Wimbledon or something like that, and 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 I think it misunderstands what play is because play isn't something where the child just runs about and plays. You know, go into the wooden play is what her mum says, but actually play needs interaction and order and and rules and structure. Um, it can't just be go and run around in a wood and pretend you're a space alien because children rarely do that. They 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 play they play soldiers by picking up twigs um, and running around in a space that looks a bit like a battlefield. They play tea parties by buying plastic teapots and and pouring fake drinks with it. You need to be in the world to change the world. Um, but but this film seems to suggest that you're either. I guess in back back to what we're saying, like you're either in Hundred Acre Wood playing and having a lovely time, or you get the train back to London and you can't play at all. Um, and and that's the strange thing about it is it doesn't understand that play that Winnie the Pooh is an object of play, but he can't be played with because he's a real thing. You can't play with real things. Yeah, and but also the the. the the movement that the Winnie the Pooh makes when he goes into... I can imagine, again, a version of this film where the fantasy characters intrude into real-world London and cause all manner of... But actually, they don't really disrupt the logic and, and um, uh, the, the rules or the 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 world as much as I thought they were going to do. This is still... And I think that becomes that comes from the fact that there's a general level of acceptance that, that talking animals exist and talking stuffed toys exist, um, and that's kind of... 
that's kind of all all fine. And I wondered whether there's something about that that bit where they sort of barge in at the end and and Christopher Robin presents his solution to the. Uh, he he doesn't quit. He produces. His, he's not. He's not Mr. Banks. He doesn't quit the bank. He decides to um, just come up with an alternative solution that avoids him having to fire a lot of his friends. I've got it. I'm. I'm at the end of the podcast, and I've got it. The thing that troubles me about the movie is exactly that. It's that classic Disney problem of going like play is great and play is subversive and world and and you know what? There's more to life than making money, and there's more to life to than working in a in a briefcase off a luggage company and 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 he's missing the world and the most and you know they they do that kind of interesting dialogue with with the you know what's the difference between um, a blanket a briefcase and a balloon um uh or you know is is your briefcase more important than your child what's the you know and all that kind of questions that it's asking um of um of of the character of Christopher Robin, what do you value more? And it uh, and on one level, the narrative is saying, well, you value play more because play is when you're alive, play is when you matter, play is when you um uh play is when you um are with your child and with your family and with the people around you. Um, so play is what matters, but um, but it's also when he is playing. What or it's or it's more the only vision of play that it offers that it allows for is a play that is for recreational purposes only away from the world of serious business and and finance and the the radical solution it offers the radical transformation that um the character of Christopher Robin actually goes through is to take weekends off and to spend a little bit more time with his family but not really alter his lifestyle in any way despite the profound worldview change you would surely go through if you went through the events of this movie so fantasy can influence life but only it can only really tickle around the edges uh, what, is there a, a relationship then to be made between uh, and we've used this analogy of oil and water to describe live action and and, and animation exactly that kind of mixing it, it's it's what the film is, is doing is that those you can combine them all you want but the professional world and the world of play will never mix they have to be kept separately that's that's how the film sort of ends he's going to he's going to work and work on it right away and enjoy he says working on it right away but he's going to go on holiday first for the weekend or he's going to take some time doing nothing but you can bet your life that when he's finished doing nothing he'll get back to work and potentially be in the same exactly the same situation as him and his family were at the start of the film um hopefully with a little bit more emphasis on his part of engaging with the the life of his daughter because up to that point he sort of ignored her relatively easily um and so yeah there's there's i think the the you're right that the film writes a, a check with regards to to belief and fantasy and what that means in relation to labor and and sort of income and economics and in the world of business that it doesn't quite cash yeah as we move towards a conclusion do you have any final i'd like to to mention something about the landscapes and the, the urban space but in terms of your with your fantasy hat on do we have any other kind of final uh, or closing thoughts oh no i think i've i think i've done my fantasy soapbox enough for today i think i've covered most of the main blocks i mean i think we've we've alluded this throughout i think just to you know reinforce i think there is something very interesting about the relationship between fantasy and nostalgia because it plays into a wider issue of of fantasy's relationship to postmodernism um uh and there are writers like uh Linda Hutchie uh, and and people like that who've sort of have sort of argued the postmodern condition is inherently nostalgic in that it's post yeah it's that it, there is no there is no new they're simply are looking back to old with with um with a certain sense of loss um so 
it's it's in so i guess i guess the confusion and the and the ambivalence that surrounds nostalgia as an impulse is also in this movie so i am confused by the fantasy in this movie but hopefully at least i've articulated what the nature of my confusion is if not solved it yeah um so i yeah my only other thing is another post actually the post industrial and there's a as a um a piece of of writing by nick jones in a book on the city in american cinema and he's talking about essentially bricolage cities he calls them so um, modern cities that are combined for visual pleasure and recognition so uh, big hero six a computer animated film that combines tokyo and san francisco uh, and I've, i've heard nick talk about um the role of CGI in the creation of certain kinds of, of city spaces in films like Inception, uh, The Adjustment Bureau, and Doctor Strange. So these fantasy landscapes where the, the urban space is sort of fluid uh, and obviously the role of digital technology in creating space and the city where fluidity and digitality and virtuality is all sort of privileged and stuff. And the, the, the way in which this monumental architecture is articulated is one that is sort of malleable. These, these are flexible urban environments. Uh, and so it reminded me of, of so again the production of the film this is this is a film that's set in london but it uses uses cgi not just for the characters the art the representation of the characters but it uses cg in the construction of landscapes and the reason i know this is because when i was doing my phd is and visiting senate house library in london the senate house library doubles as, as winslow luggages from the outside and the final sort of moments of the film where Christopher Robin has his realisation that he should really have paid more attention to his family than his luggage business, which is then further upturned when he doesn't do that at all in the next five minutes. But they're sitting on a couple of steps outside Senate House. No, a little bit, yeah. Um, and he's sitting outside on the steps and he's sort of his, his daughter is apologising because she's lost his papers and he says oh it doesn't matter you know you're, you're, you're my biggest adventure as Mr Incredible says and I almost missed it. Uh, and so uh, the film uses digital technology to sort of combine and create this virtual backlot where where I think and I think the virtual backlot is a sort of intensification of what Nick Jones is talking about with about the with regards to these urban spaces uh, and the way that CGI creates demolishes manipulates um, to create these post metropolis spaces in films like Inception and, and Doctor Strange and whatever um, in the same way, I think uh, l- a lower level, but the the virtual backlot and the use of digital technology to create this image of London is doing exactly the same thing. It's overlaying modern spaces and older spaces. So the Art Deco building of Senate House combined with the steps of the Royal um, College at Greenwich and kind of creating this brick a similar kind of bricolage um, collage space that 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 kind of combines different different spaces in London to create a every London on every city on screen is fictional because every film has the chance to re re reconfigure the geography but there's something quite digital and quite technological about the way that that Christopher Robin tries to to bring together these different disparate spaces across the city of London into one sort of chocolate box city if you like and create create its architecture and geographical order from digital technology so I thought that was a, an interesting it chimed with with sort of the use of a fluid digital urban space in these more kind of spectacular blockbuster films it's still happening but perhaps in a slightly watered down way in a film like Christopher Robin we're back to this idea of effects are there but you don't notice them um right uh I think that's probably enough for today uh Chris and I'm still confused so um hey we'll we'll worry about it another time um I'm sure Winnie the Pooh will come up again on on the podcast as we delve into sort of the various back catalogs of fantasy animation um 
I guess I'll just quickly do the admin for today. So, uh, of course, you can um, contact us um, via various of our social media streams, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. And the handle is fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Uh, particularly, we'd love to hear your um, recommendations for your favourite Christmas fantasy animation for our next um, Christmas Choice episode in a month's time. So you've got a month to get those suggestions in. Uh, and Chris and I will pick one and share as many as we others we can on the podcast. Um, is there anything else we need to plug today? Of course, there's the blog. Um, you can access that at fantasy-animation.org as well as the um, archive of podcasts. We've referred to a few past episodes on this um, discussion, so do check them out there, as well as um, suggested readings you can find in the um, synopsis for these episodes. We're, we're slowly updating back episodes with that as well, but um, you'll be able to see um, some of the books we've mentioned and, and articles we've mentioned on the podcast and, and access them. Um, I don't... Th- is anything else we need them to do? Uh, like like us, subscribe to us, review us um, on any of your podcast feeds. That would be really, really helpful um, to boost our visibility. Um, you know, we're happy to keep doing these podcasts. We love doing them. Um, we just would love even more people to be listening to them. Um, and every little effort helps with that. So please do, um, do, do one of those things. Or failing that, um, have a Zoom call with someone and, and tell them about it in this socially distanced world we're currently living in. Yes, 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 yes. No, absolutely. I think that if, if you're listening to these episodes, certainly at these at these kind of difficult, challenging times and, and you're um, either inspired to go and watch something or you've been watching something over this these last few months and, and an idea has sparked, then please do please do get in touch because, yeah, we're sort of really keen to hear from as many people as we can and, and different kind of voices. It doesn't matter if you're a if you're an academic or whether you're a, an artist or whether you're just a fan of, of fantasy and animation. Um, if there's something that you've watched or something that you've heard us say or something that you've read on the website and it sort of sparks a, 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 another thought that you've had about about the world of, of animated fantasies then drop us a line via the, the website and we'll um yeah we'd love to hear your ideas you can also email us at fananimresearch f-a-n-a-n-i-m research at gmail.com um if you want to go to the old-fashioned approach i think that's us for another week chris um or another episode we'll um we'll uh well, I'll tell you what, we, I, I won't spoil what the next episode will be, but we've we've thought about it with the UK lockdown in mind, um, and it's going to be hopefully very th- very therapeutic, both for the hosts taking part and the listeners. Um, I'm excited to do it, but I will um, I will uh, I will I won't I will tease you with just that, and I'll and I'll let it pop up in your feed in a, in, in two weeks' time. Um, but that's us for another week, Chris. Uh, thank you for joining to one uh, hundred acre world with me. A pleasure. I'll I'll. Uh, I was going to say something witty, but I have nothing to nothing to say because I quite like I quite like the film. Yeah, you quite yeah you liked it more than me. I think um, I am I am I have been Eeyore, uh, and you have been Pooh. I think um, uh, and not not in not in I've just realised what that sounded like. Not in that sense, of course. Um, a pleasure to have you as always, and a pleasure to to do this with you. Right, uh, we'll we'll go away. We will see you all next time on the show, and goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Please, not the song. The wonderful thing about Tiggers is Tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made out of rubber. Their bottoms are made out of springs. They're bouncy, flouncy, trouncy, bouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about Tiggers is I'm the only one. He does that a lot. I'm the only one. <laughs> <laughs>